very, very excited about our speaker this evening. His name is Adrian Miller. And um, can you hold up his book? He just published a fantastic book. I've only read parts of it because I just got it, Soul Food. And we're going to find out more about that tonight. Um, I, we have just a few copies of it, but it is for sale on Amazon. I happen to have already checked. So we've got those five copies that he'll sign. And then after that, you'll have to see him speak again somewhere to get him to sign it, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, the book is amazing, but it is not actually the only amazing thing that Adrian has done. Um, his background is pretty astounding. He um, worked as a lawyer in, Den in Denver for quite some time, and then he became special assistant to President Clinton, where he was the deputy director of the President's Initiative for One America, which is an initiative that works on closing the opportunity gaps for minorities in the United States. Then he returned to Colorado and worked, well, in Colorado, right, for the Bell Policy Center. And then after that, he actually worked for uh, Governor Ritter, where he handled all kinds of things, homeland security, military, and veterans issues, and, and I, this is close to my heart, he worked at, um, on the Colorado campaign to end childhood hunger. So now he is actually, in addition to being a uh, soul food scholar and a culinary historian, he is also working as the direct, executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. So pretty amazing guy, and I feel really lucky that we have him here. Let's give a big round of applause to Adrian Miller. So I said this stool and this mic has an unplugged feel, so I like this. So... Uh, <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'm so thrilled that you all came out tonight to hear about soul food. So what I'm going to do is talk for about 20 minutes and tell you kind of broad outlines of the book, the major themes, kind of the journey. And then uh, I think question and answer period will be a lot of fun. So uh, Adrian Miller, I grew up in Denver, uh, moved out to the suburbs, so moved out to Aurora when I was a little kid. So I probably lost street cred with almost all of you when you think of the term soul food, right? You're like, Denver, soul food? I understand the only thing that's saving me right now is the fact that I'm African-American. I get that. So let me win you back. So I have two Southern parents. My mom is from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So I grew up eating these foods. Now, we ate a lot of different things, but uh, I was most conscious of this traditional cuisine on the holidays, particularly Thanksgiving, because uh, a lot of ethnic groups have the turkey and the cranberry, but then they put their own spin on other dishes. Um, and then also New Year's Day. So New Year's Day, uh, and Southerners in the audience, I know there's some here because I talked to you. So New Year's Day, we would have black eyed peas for... Good luck. Yeah, or some call it Hop and John if you do mix in the rice. And we have greens for money, right, folding money. And then we'd also have candy jams, uh, chitlins, which is pig intestines. That's an acquired thing. I'm not expecting everybody to feel chitlins. Uh, and so, and cornbread. And so that was our, kind of our deepest expression of this thing. So why did I write this book? Well, I was in the, thank you for that introduction. Pamela. Uh, I was in the Clinton administration, and uh, it had come to an end. And so I was looking for a job. I was in Washington, D.C., and uh, the market was slow at the time. So I was watching way too much daytime television. And so at some point, I said, well, I guess I should read something. So I went to the bookstore, and I got a book called Southern Food at Home in History, uh, on the Road in History by a guy named John Edgerton, who was a journalist who covered the civil rights movement. And he wrote this book on the history of soul food. Uh, he wrote the book in the late 80s. I'm reading the book in 2001. And in that book, he says, the tribute to black cooks has yet to be written. 
Now, I thought that was very interesting, so I tracked Mr. Edgerton down on the internet, and I said, hey, you wrote this uh, you know, about 10 years ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, for the most part, nobody's delved into the subject. So with no qualifications except for eating the food a lot and cooking it some, I decided to dive in. So I reached out to some food writers and others, and they said, look, this country's racist. These cooks have not been celebrated. You're just not going to find a lot of information on these cooks. So cobble together the best book, book, book that you can. So I started reaching out. And so the first thing I got was a cookbook uh, called Good Things to Eat by Rufus. And Rufus Estes was a railroad cook in 1901, and it was a reprint of his cookbook. And that was dedicated to an African-American cookbook bibliographer named David Walker Lupton. So I thought, well, let me talk to this guy. And I figured he only had 50 books tops. So I reach, I find Mr. Walker, uh, Mr. Lupton, and he tells me he has 500 books. And some of them go back to the 1800s. I said, you've got cookbooks by black people that go back to the 1800s? And he said, yeah. Now, graciously, pre-publication, he shares this outline with me. And so the other critical thing that happened was uh, in that outline in the 1920s, there's an entry that says that a guy named Alphonse Schomburg, and if you've been to the library in Harlem, it's named after this guy, this is the Schomburg Center for African-American Research, uh, he was going to write a history of black cooking in the 1920s, but he didn't get to it. But he left an outline of what he was going to do in the library. So I found that outline, read it, was blown away. I found out about cooks that cooked for presidents in the White House, prominent African-American chefs in hotels and other places. And so thinking that this history was lost because it was in a note form, I just sketched out the research points and tried to find all that I could. And I found half of it right away. The other last thing I'll tell you that was really big was that um, thanks to the digitization of old newspapers and magazines and other things that are word searchable, I have enough to write five books. So then I said, okay, well, if I'm going to start this endeavor, I think I'm going to write about soul food because soul food is the most recognizable aspect of African-American cuisine. And so um, I decided to write the book this way. I created a representative soul food meal. I write a chapter about every part of the meal. And in each chapter, I explain what the food item is, how it gets on the soul food plate, what it means for the culture. And I also include recipes at the end because my ultimate goal is for people to get in the kitchen and start cooking this cuisine. So I include health conscious, traditional, and fancy recipes in case you want to show off. Now, you're probably thinking, and my book is published by the University of North Carolina Press, so I have an academic publisher. So I'm going to give you the title. And now that I've told you that I have an academic press as my publisher, get ready for all the punctuation, okay? (laughs) So it's Soul Food, colon, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, comma, One Plate at a Time. All right. So I flex, that reflects the organization of the book. And now I try to have fun, right? Because I don't want to write a boring, plodding history. So I'll give you two examples of chapter titles that I love. Um, and each chapter has some kind of theme. So think of the chapters as a historical essay on, around some theme that answers the questions I just uh, let you know and then tries to really get you interested in this food. So in the fried chicken chapter, I talk about religion because in African American circles, we call fried chicken the gospel bird or Sunday cluck. And so that shows you its importance as a Sunday dinner tradition. And I talk about how there's a religious connotation to this food. So I call that chapter Fried Chicken and the Integration of Church and Plate, you know, just to show that. (laughs) Now, uh, another chapter title that I love is my chapter on um, macaroni and cheese. Uh, And I talk about macaroni and cheese as a very unlikely soul food classic because there's not a lot of dairy in African-American cuisine. And part of this is because of the higher incidence of lactose intolerance among people of West African descent. Um, And so in a lot of soul food circles, you'll see buttermilk used for dairy because buttermilk does not have lactase. 
so the body can process it better. And so because of this, it's an unlikely soul food classic, I call that chapter, How Did Macaroni and Cheese Get So Black? So, you know, that's a, so it gives you the idea. So let me go through the meal. The entrees are a choice of fried chicken, catfish, or chitlins. And for the uninitiated, chitlins are pig intestines that are either stewed or fried. I've always had them stewed. I've never had them fried, but that's the other option. The sides are black-eyed peas, greens, macaroni and cheese, and candy jams. And I know this is a sophisticated audience, but I need to do a public service announcement. What we call yams in this country are dark-fleshed sweet potatoes. They are not tropical yams. Totally different plant, okay? Um, Then I write a chapter on cornbread and also on hot sauce because if you're going to have soul food, you got to have some hot sauce. And then I also write a chapter on red drinks because I believe that red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. And then for my dessert chapter, I couldn't settle on one because if you go to a, you know, if you go to a soul food function, you're not going to have just one dessert. You're going to have a tray of several. So I wrote about banana pudding, sweet potato pie, pound cake, and peach cobbler. Uh, and so ultimately, I try to talk about where this food goes. So let me start with the beginning. In terms of the culinary story, if you're going to talk about African-Americans, you need to talk about West Africa because most African-Americans trace our heritage to West Africa. And I define West Africa as the band of countries along the western coast, starting with Senegal in the north all the way down to Angola in the south. Okay? Now, the typical meal in South Africa... Am I, am I Okay, sorry. The typical meal, and I'm just like, I want to engage you all so much. Uh, typical meal in West Africa is some kind of starch with a savory soup, stew, or sauce served either alongside or on top. Now, that stew, soup, or sauce can be a mix of vegetables and meat. So that's kind of a West African culinary signature because in other cultures, they separate those things. So having mixed, uh, food, uh, meat and vegetables mixed is, is not unusual. So in West Africa, there are traditional grains depending on what part of the region you lived in. So if you were in Senegal and Gambia, that's rice country. They have a native rice. It's redder in color than the Asian rice that we're used to. Um, and then as you, in fact, if you've ever been to Savannah and had red rice, um, my theory is that is taking the white Asian rice, which was more prevalent in this country, and adding tomatoes to stain it to make it look more like the reddish rice that West African cooks were used to. Um, well, for the South, grains are more important. So grains, millet, sorghum. And then if you get even further South, root crops are dominant. So yams, cassava, plantains, those sorts of things. Now, by the time that the Atlantic slave trade is happening in the earliest decades of it, West Africa becomes this huge agricultural experimentation zone. So you have foods coming from old Europe, landing in West Africa, and then you have a lot of new uh, foods from the Americas, so new world foods also coming to West Africa. So just to give you an example of some of the new world foods that arrive in West Africa, sweet potatoes, chili peppers, because those are all native to South America. Um, And then coming from the old world, you have things like eggplant. Um, There were also sesame seeds that were grown in the region. Now, okra... Black-eyed peas and watermelon are native to Africa. So that's part of the, the mix. So all of these things come over across the, America, uh, across the Atlantic into the Americas during the slave trade. Now, the interesting thing that happens is uh, West African farmers take these foods and they start experimenting with them. So West Africans were actually very familiar with a lot of foods that they got in the Americas. Because when you hear a lot about soul food history, part of the narrative is that these people were forcibly removed from their homelands and forced to eat foreign foods in a new context. Sometimes that was true, but that's not always the case. 
Now, for the Middle Passage, and the Middle Passage was that horrific journey from West Africa to the Americas that lasted anywhere from six weeks to ten weeks, depending on when you left and where you were going, um, where essentially the um, African-American cargo, or the West African cargo, was put underneath for that entire journey and only led up twice a day for feeding and bathing, okay? So it was a, an intense time because a lot of the slave insurrections on those boats happened at that time when people were above deck. In the early years of the slave trade, the European slavers actually fed their human cargo the foods that they were used to as Europeans. But the mortality rates got so high that they had to switch. Because think about slavery's arithmetic, right? They're not thinking about humanity. Their calculus is this. How do I keep this group of people alive long enough so that when I disembark, I can get paid my money? So they had to switch gears. And so what they started to do was to feed their, um, the enslaved West Africans the foods that they were used to. So if they had a majority of people from Senegal and Gambia, they fed them rice in their, in their meal rations. They're taking them from Angola, Nigeria, or what today is Ghana. They would feed them yams or sweet potatoes, some kind of root crop. So they made that change. Now, when we get to the Americas and the slavery system develops, you start to see a replication of kind of the West African meal patterns. So the typical slave rations were this. Once a week, the enslaved would get five pounds of cornmeal, a couple of pounds of meat, and that could be smoked or salted pork, beef, or fish, depending on where you were, uh, and then a jug of molasses. So other than that, the enslaved had to figure out how they were going to survive. And so a lot of the enslaved would have a patch of land where they would garden, and some of them tried to grow the crops that they were used to in West Africa if they could, but you're translating plants from a tropical climate to a temperate climate, so that wasn't always successful. So they had to substitute other things. Uh, they would fish and they would hunt. Now, the work schedule would often end about midday on Saturday and resume Monday morning. So that was the time for feasting, relatively speaking, in this system. So, um, so the typical diet was really eating vegetables in season. Meat was used very sparingly and often just to season uh, certain foods. Um, and so things that were processed, like anything with white sugar, or white flour were only eaten on the weekends or on holidays, special occasions, okay? So that's a very important thing for you to remember. So um, we start to see the replication of West African kind of food patterns. So along this Carolina coast and in Georgia, a lot of people were from Senegal and Gambia, and so you saw a lot of rice um, eaten there. So if you're familiar with Charleston or Savannah, a lot of rice dishes. Um, In fact, rice was a, a huge cash crop, and one strain of rice was called Carolina Gold, not so much for its color, but for its value. Um, a series of hurricanes wiped out that industry in the late 1800s. Uh, and then uh, in some places you had corn that was prevalent, and that was for people who were used to grains. And in some places the enslaved asked for sweet potatoes uh, rather than corn as a ration. So you can see that influence of, of root crops. So now fast forward past emancipation. Um, one significant thing happens in the South, and that is the emergence of the sharecropping system. So if you were an enslaved person, now free, uh, you had to make a living, uh, and there are very few jobs that were allowed for these African Americans to uh, pursue because there was still a racial caste system. So farming was one of the few things that people could do, and you entered a system where basically you went to a landlord, and the landlord was the former master. They're just called landlords now, and they have the land, and you make an agreement. You get a, uh, some a patch of land, and the agreement is this. You're going to farm that land, and immediately whatever proceeds you get, half of that goes to the landlord. The rest goes to you. But now you're entering this bargain with very little money and probably no equipment. So you have to take a loan against your proceeds to get the equipment that you need for farming, 
and to get food and other things. So in this system, this commodity cash system, your incentive is to grow as much of the commodity crop as possible. So in, the, in a sense about food, what happens is there is a transition from homegrown food to store-bought food. And the store was on the plantation. And guess who, owned the store, who ran the store? The landlord. So you can see this level of dependency just deepening. Okay? Now we get to the early 1910s. Uh, through that decade, a lot of economic opportunity uh, starts to open up across the country. So millions of African Americans leave the South over a six-decade period, and that's called the Great Migration. Um, if you haven't read a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, Wilkerson, I highly recommend it because she tells the story of this Great Migration through three families. Okay? So the Great Migration happens, and so what happens is you have African Americans leaving parts of the South for different parts of the country. And what I show in my book is that there was kind of a pattern to this. If people were along the eastern seaboard, they tended to just go up the seaboard to Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., New York, Boston. If they were in the deep south, kind of that interior part of the south where cotton was grown, they often went to Midwestern cities. So um, Detroit, um, Cleveland, Chicago, Milwaukee, St. Louis, all of these towns start to get black migrants there. And then people that lived in the western part of the south often tended to, so like Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, they tended to go to the West Coast and just um, live there. So you kind of see these patterns emerge. So if I were to define soul food, and there are many layers to the definition, just like a nice coconut cake, uh, my first cut at this is that soul food is a traditional food of African Americans, because African Americans have made contributions to several cuisines in the South. Of course, they've made contributions to the mother cuisine, which we call Southern food, but also the Chesapeake Bay area uh, had its own cuisine. It was so good that we overate it, so you just don't hear a lot about it. Um, a lot of the resources were depleted, but there was a dish called terrapin, which was a turtle dish uh, that was so good, people would just eat the meat out of the shell, um, and it was a gourmand's dish, but we pretty much uh, overate that almost to the point of extinction. But then you start working down the coast, and you get low country cooking, so that's the cooking of Charleston and Savannah, and then also the Creole cooking of the lower Mississippi Valley, so Mobile, New Orleans. Even, I know some African Americans who consider themselves Cajun, um, but all of that cooking was um, influenced by African Americans. So soul food is really the food of the interior South, where cotton was grown, that gets exported to all these different parts of the country as migrants leave and they start to settle in other places. And African American migrants were just like anybody else. You get to a new place, you try to recreate home. And what the pattern is in this country is that for immigrants that come here, at first they try to recreate home and get the familiar foods, but as they prosper, they don't want the day-in and day-out stuff that they got, right? They want some of the celebration food. And so that is what is iconic for us outside of the group. So if you think about any ethnic cuisine, we're talking about the celebration foods of their home country. And soul food is really the celebration food of the South. In this case, the old country is the rural South, um, instead of West Africa. So fried chicken, you know, catfish, those were things that were eaten every once in a while. In fact, the earliest days of fried chicken, it was just something you ate in the spring because you would only use a spring chicken. You heard that, spring, that expression, he's, on, he's no spring chicken? Well, <laughs> spring chickens were the preferred bird for um, eating fried chicken or making fried chicken, and then you would use older birds to make stews and other things, okay? So that was a seasonal dish. Now, the reason why certain foods are iconic and for my Southerners in the audience, the meal I laid out, you're like, well, I, I ate that. Um, the reason why these are iconic is because as black migrants were leaving the South, they timed it almost to the same point that we had the emerging industrial food um, commodity chain. So a lot of these foods were the ones that just simply lasted the longest. 
when people would get to the news point. So in the South, they don't just eat collard greens. They eat a ton of different greens. And if I were to list the soul food greens, I would say it's collard, mustard, turnip, kale. Yes, we were, we've been eating kale for three centuries. So <laughs> this new craze just cracks me up. I say, I keep telling people, welcome to the party. Um, um, so, but collards are the green, are the iconic green because they just lasted the, the longest in terms of being shipped by rail or by truck or whatever. Black eyed peas, the same thing. A lot of different peas are bean, and black eyed peas is a, really a bean. But a lot of different beans and peas are eaten in the South. There's lady peas, there's whippoorwills, there's cream peas, all kinds of pink eye peas. But black eyed peas were the ones that, in the dried form, lasted the longest. Okay, so we see this development outside the South, and typically um, these foods were eaten on a Sunday dinner because the the, the what blacks encountered outside the South was not a paradise. They still had meager housing, poor jobs. A lot of situations were in flux, so Sunday dinner was an anchor that tied people not only together in this new environment, but tied them back to the old country. So now let me talk about the term soul food, and then I'll take your questions. So you may um, wonder, what is this term, where does this term soul food come from? The conventional wisdom is that soul food started in the 1960s as part of the black power movement, where anything that was a cultural marker of blackness was called soul. But actually, soul food goes way back in our culture. The earliest conjunction that I could find of soul and food in the English language is actually from Shakespeare. So any Shakespeare fans in the house, if you remember the play The Two Gentlemen of Verona, there's a scene where you've got Julia and Lucetta talking about this hunky guy named Proteus, okay? And so Julia says to Lucetta, Oh, knowest thou not that his looks are my soul's food? Pity the dirt that I have pined in by longing for that food so long a time, okay? No applause for my dramatic interpretation? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Tough crowd at Golden Beer Talks. All right. So we learned a couple of things, right? First, we learned that even in the late 16th century, it was not unusual for two women to get together and describe a guy as yummy. Um, The other thing is just this play of tangible versus intangible, and that's what soul food is about. Soul is about this concept that uh, African Americans, given the oppression and all that we've endured in this country, we are the most soulful people. Because if someone had soul, they wouldn't do this to another group of people, which is what whites have done with the discrimination and everything. So it's that playoff. But... Soul food, as a term, is religious for centuries afterwards. It meant going to listen to a sermon, doing things to edify your spiritual life, like reading scriptures. That's what soul food means. Now, it takes a musical turn in the 1940s because you have a bunch of disgruntled African-American jazz performers who are mad because all these white dudes are making all the money, they're getting all the press, they're getting the best gigs. And so they said, we're going to take this music to a place where they can't mimic it. And that was the sounds of the rural... Black, uh, the rural church, uh, black church in the rural South. So that gospel sound was described as funky and soul. So this is starting in the 1940s. So we could easily call this food funky food, but that's not very appetizing. <laughs> so soul is the thing that catches on and starts getting slapped on all aspects of black culture. So it is a po- fun cultural term before we get to the black power movement in the 1960s. Now, what happens in the 1960s is you've got a group of people like Stokely Carmichael and others who are looking for ways to bind, to make uh, the African-American community nationally more cohesive. Because what people were dealing with in the northern, northern ghettos was not the same struggle as what was happening in the rural south. Very, both were very important, and they felt a connection, but it wasn't strong enough. Mm-hmm. So these cultural things were some of the things that caught on. And food was a way of binding this group together. But it falls off the wheel almost immediately because by focusing on the foods of the interior south, they kind of glossed over all of these other traditional food differences like what was happening on the coast 
with low country and Creole cooking. Um, but there are two cr- critiques of soul food that almost spring up immediately, and they endure to this day. One is that it's unhealthy. So the idea is that soul food needs a warning label. If you keep eating these foods, you're going to die. The second is, is that soul food is slave food. It's the master's leftover, his unwanted food. So why celebrate these foods that were thrown away by the master? Because if you do so, you're actually ingesting white superiority and conversely, black uh, inferiority. inferiority. So those, th- that's been around for several decades. It still exists today. And I think that's why soul food has such a horrible reputation. Um, in terms of the future of soul food, I think that soul food will endure in the South because that's just where the food expression is the strongest. I'm not so sure about outside the South. Um, because of the horrible reputation, because so many soul food restaurants are closing, um, and soul food is in transition outside of the South as well as inside the South. Um, for research for my book, because I care about my craft, I went around the country. I ate in 150 soul food restaurants <laughs> in 35 cities in 15 states. Uh, if you were my Facebook friend, I, you were along for the journey because I would take a picture of everything before I ate it. Um, and I got so many expressions of concern, I called it my year of living dangerously. <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually lost weight over that because I was just more conscious about what I was eating and better at exercising. So I'm not going to write the soul food diet. That's not a book that I'm going to write. <laughs> um, and so what, one of the biggest things that I found is that there are two trends. The most of the action in soul food now is in upscale soul food, where essentially they're taking these variety meats like neck bones, like oxtails and other things, and reworking them and charging you $20 for them. And you all seem very happy to do that. Um, And they're not even calling it soul, right? Because it's got such a bad image. They call it southern. And then vegan and vegetarian. Um, In fact, I went to a place called Solely Vegan in Oakland, California. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what I had. I had southern fried tofu. So it was tofu made to look like fried chicken. Yes. (laughs) Tofu made to look like fried chicken. It actually tasted like catfish. Um, I had vegan mac and cheese, so no dairy. They used soy milk for it. And then vegan collard greens, which tastes just like other kind of collard greens. Um, And it wasn't that bad. But even in the South and across the country, most restaurants are no longer using pork or smoked turkey to season their greens. They're just using, well, most people are not even using anything. So there's a sea of bland vegetables out there. Um, But some are spicing. And that's, that's the big thing. And part of it, I think, is to respond to the health challenges posed by uh, soul food and customer requests. Um, And then the other thing is just economically, if you want to reach the broadest customer base, being vegetarian and vegan is the way to go. Um, I don't know if soul food is going to endure because of its bad reputation um, and also, I think, because of the decline of home cooking. Um, But I think with the rise of celebrity chef culture, that may change. I'm noticing more kids are getting interested in cooking. Um, And I I have mixed feelings about this because I think they think they're going to get rich being a chef. And it's just the same, it's the same dynamic as being an athlete or a rapper. I mean, very few people who enter that field break out to that kind of money. So, but it's getting more, more people into the kitchen. Um, so uh, I've talked long enough, so let me just take your questions. But thank you so much. Is that all right? Yes, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I'll just take questions. Yeah. Yes, in the back. Of a coconut cake? Coconut cake, thank you. Well, it depends on where you go. I've had a cake that was 12 layers. They were very thin. It's a place called Peninsula Grill in Charleston. It's a pretty nice coconut cake. But I like two layers of coconut cake. So you got the frosting. with the, We've got the coconut and maybe some nuts on it and a nice buttercream or cream cheese frosting. I do not like that whipped cream stuff. Okay. 
and then you've got your white cake and then you know another layer so it's just repetitive but you know i i like the multiple layers rather than just one flat cake a great coconut cream cake is at cora Fay's soul food restaurant which is on colorado boulevard near 29th yeah so check it out So my favorite soul food restaurants in the Denver area are Corfe's. Um, then there's a place called Welton Street Cafe. And if you were listening to the CPR interview, it was live from uh, Welton Street Cafe. So that's in Five Points, right by the light rail station. And then I like a place called Kirk's Soul Kitchen, which is actually out in Aurora, just east of I-225 on Colfax. The guy's named after Captain Kirk. Um, yeah, that's a fun place, too. Now, in terms of southern food, um, there's a place called Tom's Home Kick- Kitchen in, in Five Points. Tom's Soul Kitchen is run by two white dudes in a black neighborhood, and they're making a killing. Um, there's a line outside the, the, the door by 1130. Um, they sell food until they run out, and they regularly run out. They shout the menu into the phone every day, so if you want to know what they're cooking, you leave a voicemail. And then the thing I love about the place is peach cobbler is considered a vegetable or a side. <laughs> Gotta love that. Yes? A time frame when the soul food migrated from the slave quarters into the plantation house. Did that happen over a period of time, or when? When did? Because my wife's from the south, and we eat a lot of that kind of food. Yeah. When we're there, um, and it's commonplace now. Right. So, the question is about kind of the when did soul food migrate and become part of southern food? Is that a, a yeah. best a good way? So it all, it happens almost immediately because there was a dynamic process in cooking these foods. So. One of the big finds in my book is I, I always thought – I just assumed that there was always separated cooking, that the, African, the enslaved African-Americans got something different than what was in the big house. But that was only in a small percentage of the plantation. So you saw Gone with the Wind, you know, Tara Plantation. That was a small number where you had bifurcated teams of cooks. For the most part, master and slave were eating out of the same pot because it just made more sense economically to do that. Mm-hmm. And so you have the didactic practice of European influences – um, and West African influences almost immediately. Now, what's hard, because they didn't keep recipe books, or at least the recipe books only reflected the European origins of foods for the most part, is really only until the 1800s that you see the West African influence pronounced because you start seeing okra in manuscript cookbooks. Um, you start to see uh, chili peppers a lot more because in the 19th century, having red pepper in a dish was considered vulgar. It was vulgar to have a lot of heat in something. So the fact that peppers were thrown in, that's showing a West African kind of influence there. Um, so you see things like that starting, but it's definitely there by the, uh, the 19th century. So I would say from day one. Um, now, well, I'm going to use that opportunity to do something I didn't do in my talk. So what's the difference between Southern and Seoul? Because there's a lot of overlap. So to me, um, Seoul food is more intense uh, in the sense that it's a heavier reliance on variety meats like chitlins, pig feet, oxtails, neck bones. Um, and soul food has more intense flavoring. So soul food's going to be spicier. It's going to have more fat. It's going to be sweeter. And I think that's because of the base of things used were, you know, more starches and other things. But there's definitely a lot of overlap. But I think southern food is just tends to be more subtle uh, and maybe more on the bland side than soul food. Yes? What do you, what's like a breakfast? Okay. Yeah, because I focused on kind of the lunch-dinner meal. So a breakfast soul food would be shrimp and grits, which was called breakfast shrimp. It got trendy. Um, you know, another breakfast, believe it or not, chicken and waffles was a breakfast thing. started out as a breakfast thing. 
Um, oh, what's up with that? Okay, let me. I have to talk about that. What's up with chicken and waffles? So, the creation myth that's associated with chicken and waffles is that it was started in 1920s, 30s Harlem during the jazz era because you've got these people coming out of the clubs, like the Cotton Club, at three in the morning. It's too late for dinner, too early for breakfast. Um, but that's all due to the marketing of one guy, right? He, he said that he started it as a hybrid dish. But actually, chicken and waffles goes back to old Europe. So it was the Pennsylvania Deutsch. We call them Pennsylvania Dutch. They're the ones that bring chicken and waffles across the Atlantic. Now, their version was a creamed chicken, and it could be waffles or wafers. Um, and so it takes hold in the Pennsylvania countryside, goes to Philadelphia, and then goes upscale, and then starts making its way south. So the cream chicken becomes fried. And so in the south, for a hunt or some other, if you're entertaining, it was not uncommon to have fried chicken and waffles or some other kind of hot bread. So it could be pancakes, it could be rolls, it could be whatever. Um, and so it's, it's a high-class dish for a long time. And then for whatever reason, in the 1920s, 30s, it falls out of favor in white circles, but endures in African-American circles for about eight decades, and then it breaks out, and now it's everywhere. I mean, Lay's Potato Chips has a... I say, I just saw it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a flavor. <laughs> okay. It actually doesn't taste that bad. Yes, you did. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you have, uh, you know, you have, uh, what is it, IHOP has chicken and waffles there? Yeah. Um, another one is salmon croquettes and grits. So fish and grits is kind of a, a standard... Any kind of seafood and grits is a standard kind of soul food breakfast. Yeah. I, some people argue for scrapple, and I, I don't know if that's soul food or not. Do you know what scrapple is? Do you know what hoghead cheese is? Okay. Imagine, like, all these really interesting parts of the pig congealed into a loaf and then s- sliced and then breaded and fried. That's what scrapple is. Yeah. You're, you'll pass? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So the name of that book is Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons. Yep, you definitely want to check that book out. Was there a question? I don't want to. Yes. So we equate uh, soul food being from the South, and so the slaves that came to America and brought that, were the slaves that came to South America, did they also bring that? South America, the continent? Very good question. So um, it's a difference in kind of the core ingredients. So um, what you should know about the slave trade is of the, we don't know because the records weren't kept very well. An estimated 10 million to 25 million people were taken from Africa to the Americas in the slave trade. Of that amount, only 4% come to what we call the United States today. So um, when you start going to the Caribbean and parts of South America, the African influence on the food is much stronger than what we have here. So soul food, as I define it, is an American thing because it's really an African riff on a British meal. Um, when you go further south, it's more African, so it's just a different thing. Uh, like some of the foods, um, like um, fungi, feijoada, you know, all, they have an African signature because they're, they're very similar to what's eaten in that continent, mm-hmm. but we don't have that here. And I'll give you a perfect example. There's a fried black-eyed pea fritter that's called a cara, that's all over the place in the Caribbean and South America, but does not exist in um, British North America, what, what we call the United States. And it doesn't, there's no reason for it because we had black-eyed peas here. 
my own theory is that what we call hush puppies was a substitution for that. Because when you look at a cara, you open up inside, you would not know it was from a black IP because it's kind of white on the inside. And it's very much like hush, hush puppies. So I think it's just the numerical superiority of the West Africans in those other parts of the new world, so to so quote unquote, that changes the food radically. So since we had smaller numbers here, and again, with slavery, it was all about a controlled diet. So the master and everything that was part of the racial caste system created to uphold slavery kept sending messages about people not being worth you know, anything. And so controlling their food is one way to send that message, that you have no power in the system. So a lot of soul food is this ability to rise above that, create a powerful cuisine, cuisine even though there was concerted effort to kind of disrupt and control what people are eating. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. I thought I saw another hand over here. Yeah. Oh, here we are. Yeah. I was curious. See, I, you said that soul food is sometimes referred to as southern food because soul food has this negative connotation. Do you find that to be more predominant in certain parts of the country where soul, that word, has like more of a negative connotation? Because I was kind of surprised to hear that. I never, you know, growing up would have thought soul food was being something like negative or... Really? Yeah, I don't... I was surprised to hear you say that. Okay. Maybe it's a generational thing or I don't know, but... So, yeah, I don't mean to get pry too much. So when people talk about soul food in your circles, they don't think of it as unhealthy, like, I'm not going to eat that because it's bad for me? Okay. Or, you know, I mean, I don't know. Okay, gotcha. So um, with soul food, uh, in a lot of places, it's, it's called Southern, um, and mainly in the South. You don't really hear a lot of Southerners calling what they eat soul food. They'll, they're as quick to call it country cooking or home cooking. So that's why I, I focus on this idea that soul food is really about what African Americans are eating outside the South. Um, that's where that... No, I mean, they'll, you know, they use it interchangeably, but, I mean, it's not, I can't say that they say it most of the times, they describe it as soul food. I mean, they just call it, you know, sometimes they just call it dinner, you know, because it's, <laughs> it's so part of the culture. But um, it's really in these um, major urban areas outside the South where the upscale cooking is taking root that there's a conscious effort not to call what they're selling soul food. And there are a lot of African-American cooks that do not want their cooking described as soul because they believe it's limiting, which I, I'm sad about that because there are a lot of cultures around the world where cooks embrace their traditional foods and don't run away from it. I've never known a French chef to not want to be identified as cooking French food. Um, and, they, and they make some funky stuff in France, too. I mean, they're, they're using it. I mean, they're basically using it. It's all right, right, yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a real discussion about this because um, as we get to a point where people believe that we're in a post-racial society, um, you know, questions about what blackness is are mixed up into that. And so people want their individuality without kind of a group identity. And what I'm saying is, well, you can, you can have that individuality, but you can still embrace your traditional foods and celebrate those things. I don't think you have to jettison the old for the new. And I'm not one that's standing in the way of progress because I know food has to change. We don't eat the same way that we did 100 years ago. Um, but, you know, I hope there's just more consciousness about it. I want people to understand what the food is, where it comes from, and then make their decision, not to just be uh, spoon fed some kind of theory. You had a question, sir? Yeah. The, are there certain, I mean, I think everybody knows, you know, kind of the 
concentration of the Creole flavor of, and I don't know if that's like a derivative of soul food, but are there other, um, you know, subgroups like Gullagichi or whatever that, you know, where foods migrated along their path or, or whatever things that kind of stand out that, that follow certain kind of subcultures? Yeah, so uh, you mean within the African-American context? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, Gullah Geechee, uh, and for those of you who don't know about this, there's a, a band of islands off the South Carolina coastline um, called the Gullah Islands. And so uh, there was a much stronger African retention of cultural, of African culture in that area. And it may be because, again, what was happening in South America and the Caribbean, where you just had a lot larger numbers of African Americans compared to the white population. So a lot of these foods are very similar to West Africa. So I, I, I consider Gullah Geechee part of low country cooking mm -hmm. because you see a lot of that influence. But other than um, that and Creole cooking and this Chesapeake Bay area, I don't see um, a lot of subcultures um, having a, a what I would call a cuisine. I mean, there are... Just those three. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the fourth one being, you know, the interior, the deep south. Right. And then f you could argue that, I, I'd argue that soul food is kind of this fifth thing that's trying to create a national cuisine. But other than that, you just go around the country and they, there's just these pockets of regional specialties <laughs> that, take, uh, that take place, but I, they don't rise to the point of what I would call a cuisine. Okay. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, yes. You talked about traditionally the soul food had a lot Yeah, so there are several um, people who are trying to reinvigorate kind of the heirloom plants, seeds, and that kind of thing. And they're even trying to re reinvigorate heirloom animals. So there are people raising different types of pigs um, to get kind of that old flavor back. Because one of the unsung stories of what was going on in, in a lot of American food, but also in soul food, is we've changed the animals that we're eating. I mean, they're not, the chickens and the pigs are just not the same that they were 100 years ago. So people are trying to re, um, bring those back. And there are also people trying to bring back those rice varieties um, and different tomatoes and other things. And um, there is a much more diversity to some of these things, like even collard greens. I know somebody who's researching this, they found 100 varieties. Um, and in the South, you'll find there's some counties where a variety thrives and you wouldn't know it. And so there are some people trying to bring those things back. So they're very conscious about it because we're in a kind of a local vor moment. And so that has some premium right now. And so people are in search of flavors and other things uh, and using science to do it. Now, the interesting thing is most of these uh, folks are white Southerners who are doing this, um, which is not too surprising, but um, probably the biggest, the poster child for this is a guy named Sean Brock, who is a chef. He won the James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Southeast a couple of years ago. He's associated with some restaurants in Charleston. Um, one is called Husk. And so he's an interesting guy because he's trying to meld future and past. Mm -hmm. So he's really big on the heirloom stuff, but he'll do molecular stuff in his restaurant as well. Yeah. This is a good climate for collards. This is a good climate for collards? Yeah. All right. And this is the best time of year to have them because the frost has already hit. Yeah. Ah, you didn't think I knew about that, huh? <laughs> That's the superstition about it. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been fabulous. Thank, Thank you, you so much. around if anybody else has some questions? Or, sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And if you, know, if you want to buy my book, I'm sorry, the book has been selling well. I already sold out on my first printing. And so I only had five. Yeah. And the other good news is that the American Library Association picked my book as one of the top five food books of 2013. That's 
Yeah, so Michael Pollan, Deborah Madison, you know, I'm on the same level with them. So that's cool, isn't it? Thanks.